Well, as you can see, I'm not on death's door yet. I was, uh, you know, it was one of those weird things last week. I had been in uh, Columbus visiting my parents and then Detroit. I had to run up for an emergency visit there to visit a dear friend in the hospital who was going home to be with the Lord, uh, one of the elders from my first church. And then I flew back to uh, Phoenix on Wednesday, had to speak in Tucson on, on Thursday night. And, and somewhere in the midst of all that traveling, about Friday at 2 o'clock, I, I was just feeling so cruddy and starting to spike a fever and get the chills. And, and so I called Neil and I said, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I just want to prepare you. I, I might not be on for this weekend. I mean, when that happens on a Tuesday, I don't worry. But, and if it happens on Sunday afternoon, I don't worry. But on, on Friday afternoon and by about Saturday morning at 2 a.m., uh, I, I knew I was in a little bit of, of flu distress, and so I had to go to the ER to get some fluids, and, and, I, and I knew I was going to be okay, but when I got home at about 8 in the morning Saturday, I called Neil and said, Tag, you're it. And, uh, and I thought that Neil did a fantastic job, didn't you guys, uh, filling in for us? And I, I mean, to be sure how hard that is, even though he's a seasoned preacher, I mean, what would you have done if I called you? on a Saturday morning. That, it'd be, uh, even as a seasoned preacher, it's a scary thing. So uh, I really appreciate uh, that God brought Neil here and that he does so much more than that, but at the very least can be available to preach when needed. Uh, there's a lot going on at our church and at all of our campuses and venues. And so please, you know, we hand you a bulletin every week and I hope you read it. Uh, we're gearing up for the fall season of ministry and uh, there's a lot that's going to be going on. And so please uh, ask God how you might be involved. Uh, a particular note, most of our mission trips are now back. We take 20 to 30 mission trips every year, and we'll be giving you a report this fall on how those went. But you guys know church work. I mean, it starts over again now. So now we're starting to gear up for 16, and for the mission trips we're going to do then, you'll note a particular note in the bulletin that the European Leadership Forum uh, trip is going to be held next year, next May, and we're having a, a planning meeting for any new people interested uh, on September 1st, and so that's part of our Compelled by Grace campaign, and I'd encourage you to check that out or any one of our other mission trips as you think about the future. Uh, well, as most of you know in our campuses and venues, we are in a series here called Seeds of Doubt. John chapters 5 and 6, where we are exploring why these initial crowds and the Jewish leaders and even the disciples for four chapters just proclaim their belief in Jesus, but now we're starting to doubt. And so we're looking at, at about seven things that can cause doubt in our own lives today. We've looked at legalism, but we've looked at pride, we've looked at ignorance, and today we're going to look at confusion. And so as we continue our journey through these doubt-filled chapters in the Gospel of John, I want us to read the Scripture, and so I'm going to be reading from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, and then I'm going to pray. And, and as, you know, I, I, I am not a, no one accuses me of being a super traditional guy, uh, but I just love some of the traditions of the church over the last 2,000 years, and traditionally, church people have stood when the Gospel is read. So at our venues and campuses and here now, let's all stand as I read the scripture for us, and then I'll pray, and you can be seated. John 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. 
Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough to buy bread for each of them to get a little. One of the other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we discuss now, hopefully in a cogent and passionate way, uh, this story that many of us are familiar with, we call it the feeding of the 5,000, that God, we might see it through fresh eyes today, see it from the perspective of what the context of these chapters are about, and that's trying to help us understand some of the faith killers that are out there that can create doubt. So God, as we look at Jesus and the miracle and then uh, the crowds and their response, God, help us to knit all this together into a right understanding of what you are saying to us, even in the 21st century here today, about how we can know you and walk with you and find you in this world. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I love the story of a policeman who was parked at a routine speed trap waiting to catch speeding drivers. It was a 45 zone, and at one point, a car went by at precisely 22 miles per hour. And thinking this was dangerously slow, the officer turned his lights on and pulled the car over. As he approached the car, the officer noted that there are five elderly ladies in the car, two in the front seat, three in the back, and they were wide-eyed and white as ghosts. The lady in the driver's seat rolled her window down and said, Officer, I don't understand. I was going the exact speed limit. What seems to be the problem? The policeman, realizing what was going on, smiled a bit and explained to the woman that 22 was the root number, not the speed limit. And obviously a bit embarrassed, the woman grinned and thanked the officer for pointing out the error. And as she was about to pull away and roll up her window, the officer said, I have to ask, is everything okay in this car? These women seem to be awfully shaken. To which the woman replied, oh, they'll be all right, officer. We just got off Route 127. (laughs) <laughs> I, I hear and read a lot of jokes, and, and, and I know that didn't make you bust up in the aisles, uh, but you're going to use that this week, I promise you. That's a, that's a good joke. I, I like that joke because it, it tells us something that we all know about life, and that is that confusion is a natural and integral part of life in a fallen world. It, it just is. I mean, it happens all the time. We come home from a long day at work, and the spouse seems to be a little distant, and we're confused as to why. We don't understand. Or we're driving down the road, and your car is making a funny sound, and you're confused. You wonder, why is it that it's making that sound, and is that going to be a bad thing? Or a dear friend tells you that he or she loves the job that they have, and they're really good at it, and then you hear through the grapevine later that they got let go of their job, and you think, 
How could that happen? You're confused. Or how about this one? You're reading the Bible, which we encourage all of you to do on a regular basis. And you're going along great, and then you hit a a spot in the Bible where it just doesn't make sense. How could God be that way? And what's he saying about the world and us? And quite frankly, you're confused as to what God is trying to get across there. You see, here's what happens when confusion sets in. And that is that confusion sets in when we either lack information or misunderstand the information we have in order for us to comprehend a given reality. That's confusion. Uh, So what happened that caused your spouse to be distant? You don't know. You don't have enough information. Ergo, you're confused. Uh, What is causing your car to make that noise? You don't know. You lack information. And so you're confused and you're left wondering. Or how about your friend that loves their job and is good at it and, and, and now has lost their job? You say, what am I missing? What don't I know? Or even the Bible, that when you don't understand parts of the Bible, obviously you're not getting something about what God is saying. And though this is a natural part of life, what you need to see is that what all these scenarios have in common is that a crucial piece of information is lacking or the information you have is not being understood correctly. And when this happens, what I simply need you to see is that confusion sets in. And it happens all the time. Sometimes in very benign settings like your car going down the road. Sometimes in more serious settings like maybe understanding the Bible or relating to your spouse. And maybe this will help too. When you understand confusion that way, that it's about lacking information, you can see that confusion is different than mystery. Very different than mystery. Confusion, as we've already established, is misunderstanding reality through lacking information. Confusion, watch this, is impossible to understand reality. So so mystery is Stonehenge, (laughs) the pyramids, quantum mechanics, the trinity, uh, the problem of evil. All examples of archaeological, scientific, philosophical, and theological mysteries in which the best minds for 2,000 years have not been able to comprehend or fully understand. And though a mystery can be temporary in nature, in other words, maybe someday we'll understand quantum mechanics or how Stonehenge got there, Or maybe mystery is actually permanent. I don't think we're ever going to understand the Trinity or the problem of evil this side of heaven. And by the way, God doesn't owe us an explanation on the next either. Whether a mystery is temporary or permanent, it doesn't matter. What you simply need to see is that mysteries are impossible to understand realities, at least for the foreseeable future. That's why we call them mysteries. And the reason that this distinction here is so important is because what I would suggest to you is that by its very nature, you can't do anything about mystery. That's why some people see mystery as beautiful and alluring and all of that, because in the end of the day, it can be, but you can do something about confusion. And to be sure, we're we're attracted at times to mystery, but have you ever heard anybody brag about confusion? (laughs) I don't. Confusion is mystery's ugly cousin. That's what confusion is. And none of us are proud of confusion. But unlike mystery, where it's really impossible, at least in the present, to understand that that area of reality, with confusion, you can get that lacking piece of knowledge. You can adjust 
your misunderstanding. To go back to our examples, uh, you can try to find out why your spouse is distant. Was it their day or yours? Did you do something or is it just them? You can find out why the car is making that noise. You can find out why and, and put the connection there between your friend who lost their job that they loved and were good at. And you can find answers to some of the confusing things in the Bible. It's just that if you leave confusion alone, if you don't address it, and if you don't try to work through it, it's going to have bad consequences. Leave the spouse distant, and your marriage will be in trouble. Uh, leave that noise in the car going, you're probably going to have some problems. Uh, leave that, that unanswered, confused question about the Bible uh, there on the table for year after year after year, and you're probably going to misunderstand God and maybe even fall into what we call doctrinal heresy. You see, we all know this. Confusion ignored doesn't go away, but confusion addressed and worked through many times can be resolved. And if you can understand this brief little primer on confusion, what it is, its distinction from mystery, and why we need to not let it brew, then you are now ready to understand the story here in John chapter 6. Because I'm going to submit to you that it's all about confusion. Because in a nutshell, here is what is happening in this story that we read earlier. Here is, I believe, John's main point. And that is that in life, confusion can easily lead to doubt. And it's the same when it comes to God. I think that's exactly what John is going to show us here. That when we live in a state of confusion in life, we've learned that it can erode trust. Confused about your spouse? You're probably not going to trust him or her as much. Confused why your car is making that noise? You're going to wonder if this thing's going to run for a very long time. I, I, I mean, I, I've been confused for like four decades on why the Cleveland Browns can't seem to win an NFL championship. And, and as a result of that, and this is a true story because we're entering into football season, I'll be watching the Browns and, and say my friend Ed will text me in the third quarter and say, they're up, they're winning. And I'll text back and say, I have been here before. <laughs> I have been there. I know they have it in them to blow it and to lose. What's going on there? I lose trust in my favorite football team. After decades of not being able to win a championship and me totally confused as to why, confusion in life can lead to doubt. We all experience this. And what John is showing us here is that it's the same with God. That confusion left unattended truly can become a seedbed for doubt. And let me show you what I mean and how this works. Uh, here in John 6, the passage that we read earlier, uh, you need to know this is Jesus' fourth miracle as recorded in the Gospel of John. But interestingly, it's the second miracle that's going to cause people to doubt. Uh, so track the progression with me. Jesus is now in northern Galilee, up along the Sea of Galilee. And, and, he, the, and the other Gospel writers, which also record this miracle here, tell us that Jesus had been teaching all day long the crowds. And so he then, now this evening, wants some downtime, so he goes further into the hills with his disciples. But John then tells us that the crowds followed him. And it was a very large crowd. John is going to tell us that this crowd was made up of at least 5,000 men. And then the other gospel writers will tell us that there were women and children there as well. So most Bible experts estimate that there's at least 10,000 people 
following Jesus that day. And so they now find themselves way out in the countryside, picture maybe Globe or Black Canyon City. I mean, they're way out there. And it's late in the day, and everybody's hungry, and there's no super Walmart or fries. They're in trouble. And the only saving grace is that it's springtime. And John tells us this because in verse 4 he says it's the Passover feast. It's springtime. And so the weather is primed for a picnic or a church potluck. But again, no food. So Jesus asked Philip, one of the disciples, where they could buy enough bread to feed all these people. And I don't know if you caught it, but Philip doesn't answer the question. He doesn't tell them where they could buy enough bread. He just says, forget about where we could get the bread. Even if we had 200 denarii, he says, it wouldn't be enough to buy bread for each of them to have just a taste. Now pause on that. There's some richness in this, in this story here, and we have to understand it. 200 denarii, what is that? Uh, we know from Matthew 20, verse 2, that a denarius, which was a, currency, uh, a um, unit of currency back then, was about a day's wage for the average worker. Uh, a day's wage. So if you worked a full day, you'd get one denarius. So multiply that by 200 working days, Philip said 200 denarius, and take the Sabbath day of rest out of the equation, it would be about eight months of work here in John 6, that Philip is saying wouldn't buy enough bread to just give each of them a taste. Now, now how much bread would that buy? Uh, one Bible expert years ago actually did the math based on the purchasing power of the denarius back then, and he estimates that that much denarius, 200 denarius, would buy about 4,800 quarts of barley or 1,600 quarts of wheat. And I would submit to you, that's a lot of wheat. <laughs> that's a lot of barley. And that would make a lot of bread. But you got 10,000 people here. And what Philip is saying, that's not even going to scratch the surface. So the point is, because this is setting up what's going to happen next, is that there's simply no way to feed this many people given the absolute lack of resources at their disposal. That's Philip's point. And then another disciple pipes in, Andrew. And he says, hey, I found a small boy here. He's got five barley loaves and two small fish. The connotation in the Greek is small fish. But then he points out, these guys are like all doomsdayers. He points out that that's not going to make a dent either. And so don't you love it? You have people like this at your job. They don't bring you solutions. They bring you problems. You got somebody like that? I call it delegating up. I got people like that here at the church. They delegate things up to me. That's what these disciples are doing. They're delegating all this stuff up to Jesus. And it's here that everything changes in this story. Uh, Tony Evans once said that when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to take an opinion poll, he came to take over. <laughs> and, and Jesus is just about to take over. So here's what he does. He says, everybody sit down. And then he places the loaves and the fish in front of him. And it's interesting, he gives thanks. Did you catch that? Which, by the way, pause there for a second. That's why Christians pray before they eat. Did you know that? Some of you don't like that. You're in a restaurant and the really spiritual person you're with, you know, that you go to church with says, let's pray, and you're kind of embarrassed because everybody's looking at you. Well, guess why we do that? Because Jesus did it, and that's what they're doing here. And then Jesus has the disciples pass out the bread and the fish. The other gospel writers tell us that the disciples were the servers. And here's where some of maybe the mystery comes in. We don't know precisely how this miracle played out, 
all we know is that as they passed out these five loaves and these two fish to 10,000 people, and they probably had a basket that they were passing it out in, it continually filled up. So I picture it this way. If they were in rows like we are here and at our campuses and venues, they started the basket down one row, thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to get to the end and it's going to be empty. And it got to the end and it was full. And that's the only explanation I can have for maybe how this thing played out. But you see, John concurs. Because John says in verse 11 that they got as much as they wanted, every one of them, And then in verse 12, he says, they had all eaten their fill. So it's a miracle. No matter how you look at it, there's no natural or physical explanation that will suffice. In fact, John is so adamant that we see this as a miracle that in verse 13, he points out that after 10,000 people have eaten, that they collected all the empty remnants or all the remnants of bread and it filled up 12 baskets. And again, that's rich. Because what did you start with? Five small barley loaves. And after 10,000 people ate, now they have 12 baskets full. And this is what we might call an overflowing miracle. That's the scene John is painting here. Now, believe it or not, it is only here that this entire event comes to a head. Everything up to this point has really been preamble. Because it's only in the last two verses that John tells us the point of all of this and why he includes it here in his gospel and particularly in the beginning of chapter 6. So look with me one last time at verses 14 and 15. This is key. John says, When the people saw the sign, the miracle, that he, Jesus, has done, had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet, hang on to that one, who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, hang on to that one, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, the story ends right here. I need you to wrestle with something, and it's going to seem simple to you at first glance, but it's not. And that is, why do you think Jesus withdraws here and goes away from the people? Some of you are saying, well, it it says why he did it, that that he thought they were going to take him by force. But no, there's something even more behind that. What what were the people thinking that caused them to want to take Jesus by force that repelled Jesus to the point where he's saying, I'm out of here. I'm not staying with people who think like this. You see, they were thinking something They had something in their minds and hearts that Jesus knew that even John writes about here. And Jesus didn't like it because they caused them to have a response to him that that he is not for. And I would submit to you that it all centers around their confused declaration that he is some sort of prophet who will become their king with a small k. That kind of king. Let me show you what I think is happening here. I put this chart here in your outline, but we'll put it right here up on the board for all of us to see. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that the crowds are very confused as to who Jesus is. And that their confusion surrounds them seeing him as a prophet and that what he wants to do for them is something that an earthly king would do. And then I'm going to suggest to you that that, that that confusion fuels 
they're already burgeoning doubt. That's what I'm going to show you here in just a sec. Uh, but the, the rest of the Gospel of John, and even what we've seen up before this in the first four chapters, is saying that when you can go from confusion to clarity and realize who Jesus really is and what he really came to do, that that is the fuel for faith. I think that's precisely what's going on here. Let me explain. Uh, you noticed there in verse 14, and so did I, that they called Jesus the prophet. The prophet. What's that about? Uh, most likely it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, uh, where Moses said centuries earlier that someday after him would come the prophet who would lead the nation Israel. And the Jews for years had distinguished between this prophet and the eventual Messiah. So back in John chapter 1, verse 21, they thought John the Baptist was the prophet. They saw this prophet as a forerunner to the Messiah. So almost certainly, when the crowds here were saying that Jesus is the prophet, they weren't seeing him as the Messiah to come, but as just another holy man, another, another great religious figure who, who would help get them closer to God and to what God ultimately had for them. But what did God have for them? See, they were clueless on this too. And that leads us to the second thing. They see Jesus as the prophet, but then they see him as an earthly king. That's in verse 15. They say they wanted to take him by force and make him king with a small K. See, they wanted a physical deliverer. They wanted somebody to bring back the glory days of King David, didn't they? We're all like that. I mean, some of you think back like to the good old days of the 50s and 60s, you know, when, I mean, you bemoaned Elvis, but at least Elvis wasn't as bad as Mick Jagger. So you think like that, and you think, you know, if we could just bring those days back. and that, Well, that's how the Jews thought. The Jews thought, you know, if we could just bring back the glory days of David and Solomon when we were all under one united monarchy and things were good and they longed for a Messiah that was going to do that. And you see, you got to remember, what did Jesus just do? He fed them. He gave them a happy meal. He's performed a few miracles. And because of that, they now had some security, and they thought, man, if he can do that, think what he could do if we could get this dude back in Jerusalem. We could have a political, economic, societal king. And that's what they wanted Jesus to do. So he's a prophet figure who's going to be their earthly king. And here's what blows my mind. Here's what you guys need to see. That confusion is just going to lead to more doubt. Because you see, when you don't understand who God is. By the way, it works on a human level. When you understand who your spouse is, your kids are, your co-workers, that's not going to last you very long. And eventually you're going to get disillusioned with the paradigm that you have. And it's going to become shattered and you're going to doubt. So isn't it interesting, and we'll do this in the coming weeks, that in John chapter 6 verse 30, which is obviously after the passage we're in now, uh, the crowd say, so they said to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work can you perform? <laughs> and Jesus basically going to say, uh, four miracles. I, I, I turned water into wine, healed two people, and remember the Happy Meal? All 10,000 of you got fed. That's the signs I've given you. And guess what? They still don't believe. Because they're confused. They don't know who he is. And then in verse 36, 
I mean, Jesus will say it point blank in John chapter 6, verse 36. He says, but I said to you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. So they got the Son of God, the Messiah God, right in front of them. And they're confused as to who this Jesus is. And that invariably, that confusion left unattended is going to lead to doubt. But here's the good news about the Gospel of John, is that as they understand who Jesus is, and what Jesus came to do, it will lead to faith. See, Jesus has already told them who he is, right? We've been through this. I mean, go two sermons ago. Uh, we did John chapter 5, and Jesus makes it very clear. I have unbroken communion with God. I got unvarying resemblance to the Father. I am of the same nature with him. And the Jews got it. They wanted to kill the guy because he had just blasphemed. He had just made himself equal with God. He'll go on in two chapters from here, in John chapter 8, to make the famous I am statement. Before Abraham was, I am, which is right out of Exodus 3, where God is appearing to Moses on the, on the mountain. And Moses says, who should I tell Pharaoh that, that is sending me to him? And God says, tell him that I am is sending you. And Jesus picks up on that and says, before Abraham was, I am. See, Jesus can make it very clear. He is the Messiah God. He is God come to earth. And what is he going to do? Now watch this. He's going to be our spiritual king, which is very different than an earthly king. He's going to die on a cross for our sins, which is our deepest problem, because our sins will send us to hell. And Jesus is going to save us from hell by dying on a cross for our sins and become the savior of our souls. But then in his resurrected state, he's going to become Lord and Savior of anyone that will believe and trust in him so that on a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis, he will reign through the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds, making us more like himself each moment of each day. And if he does exist within any type of structure on earth, you know what that structure is? This is awesome. The church. <laughs> So he says, for two or three come together in my name, there I am among them. So that's the reign, the kingly reign that Jesus wants in individuals who believe and trust in him. And then in church, not society as a whole. And this right understanding of Messiah God, spiritual king, that will lead them to faith. <laughs> because Thomas and John 20, verse 28, finally gets it. It takes him 20 chapters, but Thomas finally gets it. He's the big doubter. And what does Thomas do after he touches the nail-scarred hands and he understands all of this, who Jesus is? What does he say? My Lord and my God. That's what he says. He finally gets it. I like how one commentator from the 20th century, who was actually, by the way, a high school principal in Britain, puts it in his little devotional commentary on the Gospel of John. This is good. He says it this way. He says, he who is already king has come to open his kingdom to men. But in their blindness, men try to force him to be the kind of king they want. Thus they fail to get the king they want and lose the kingdom he offers. Wow. It's so incredibly sad. But that's what's happening. But don't miss the simple point, guys. It all goes back to their confusion. They don't know who Jesus is, the Messiah God, come to earth versus a mere prophet. And they don't really know what he wants to do in their lives. In other words, an eternal relationship based upon eternal forgiveness with the living God versus a happy meal and a few miracles. They're confused. They don't get it. And the result of their confusion is just going to be to fuel their doubts. 
And, and most of you guys know me. <laughs> I'm sitting in my home office this week. All this has become so clear to me. I mean, it was clear when I was studying John a few years ago, but it becomes more clear to me. And I got to this point in my thinking, and I thought, I see the same thing happening all the time today. I do. You know, I, I um, confessedly, I, I will tell you very personally right now that um, I don't understand most groups of people in this world. I really don't. My wife will be the first one to tell you I don't understand women. Uh, I, I don't understand teenagers very well. I didn't do very well with my own. Um, I, I really don't relate all that well to younger generations, which is why I never get asked to speak to them. I, I, I don't even get asked to speak to old folks very well. And so, I mean, I just don't understand most groups of people. I, I don't get asked to most secular environments, you know, because I'm not, a, I'm not a demographer. I'm not an expert on that. Even when I was in, in Canada pastoring, you know, people would say, how's it going? I go, well, they're, they're adjusting to me well. So I didn't even, like, you know, cross-culturally communicate very well. But having said all of that, and I don't say this arrogantly, it just, it, it's part of my MO, there is one group of people I get, and that's church people. In a sick sort of way, I've hung around you guys for two-thirds of my life, and, and if there's one thing I understand, it, 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 it's church people. And, and as I gave a lot of thought this week to this idea of confusion, you know what hit me? is that it's obvious that our world is confused today about Jesus, right? I mean, come on, do I need to convince you of that? I mean, the average person in culture today says, hey, Jesus is a really cool dude, and, you know, he and Gandhi were best friends, and, you know, as long as I'm really moral enough, Jesus will open up the gates of heaven to me. I mean, that's the way most of our, our world today sees Jesus. And as you and I know, we don't say this arrogantly, they obviously haven't read the Gospels. They could not be more wrong. They're confused. They see him as a prophet. They see him as an earthly king. And, and, and just like the crowds then, they're awfully confused, and that's why their faith doesn't last very long. But because I understand church people, another thought hit me this week, and I thought, you know, but it's not just people outside the walls of the church that are confused. In my observation of church people, over the last 25 years as a pastor, almost weekly I run into a lot of more confusion about Jesus inside the walls of the church. And watch this, the confusion that we have about Jesus is more subtle than how our culture confuses Jesus, to be sure. But in the end, I would argue it leads to the same misunderstanding that can produce doubt and disillusionment that the crowds experienced. And I'm concerned for many of us. You're saying, what are you talking about? I'm going to take some risks here. I'm going to step on some toes right now. I'll just warn you. But I, I only step on your toes, honestly, and I say this with every fiber of my being because I love you. Uh, Cactus Campus and Mountain Valley and Venue and Chapel, I love you. I really do. And, and, and I feel like as your pastor and shepherd, there are times I have to expose certain ways that we think, even subtle ways about spiritual things, especially Jesus, that, that as Larry Crabb says, if we don't detach from and then attach to the reality of who Jesus is, we're never going to be what he wants us to be. And I've noticed over the years, we'll put it up here on the screen, uh, the different views of Jesus that are very subtle and they reign inside the church that concern me for how you and I see Jesus in our daily life. And I want to, before I walk through these, I want to make it very clear that, 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 that in each one of these, and this is why I call it subtle, there's some key truths about who Jesus is. These are not heresy. These are not patently false. They're just off base enough, or more so, they emphasize certain aspects of Jesus in a dangerous way. 
that I get concerned for us and how we're relating to our Savior. Here's what I'm talking about. I, I observe too many people in the church have what I call a, the take away my pain and bless me, Jesus. This is alive and well today. This is a view of Jesus, and it's easy to fall into in 21st century American living in which we see Jesus radically committed to the good life. I mean, how could he not be? We live in a, a first world culture that has great health care, despite what you might think, comparatively at least, and it has you know, riches beyond imagination, and most of us, even in a middle class environment, have done very well, and so we've experienced some level of prosperity, certainly a comfortable life, and yet here's where it becomes dangerous, is that 90% of our prayer life, 90% of even how we relate to Jesus, for some of us, center around these blessings and to keep it growing and going. And again, I'm not here to indict you, but I know this is true because, and now none of you will send me prayer requests, but I know this is true because when people ask me to pray for them, 90% of them center around this take away my pain and bless me, Jesus. Pastor, I'm going to the hospital, pray for me. Uh, uh, pastor, I'm a, I, I, I have a job loss. Pray for me. Pastor, my kids are going off the deep end. Pray for me. They're all about comfort. And, and again, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. I know some of you are going, what's, what's gotten in right now? I, I don't want to be misunderstood. Look, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't want to bless us. I'm not saying that it's wrong to want a comfort-laden life. Not at all. Here's my point. If that's the core of how you relate to Jesus, you're engaged in an adventure and missing the point. <laughs> Because he's so much more than that. And my fear is, is that many of us use Jesus toward that end. And really the bulk of our relationship with him all centers around those things. I see it way too often. And I'm here to share with you today that if that's your faith, you're going to get confused over time because he's not going to bless you the way you want you to. He's not going to come through for you on that level. He has a much bigger, higher agenda, and you need to understand that so that your faith can be built up. Before we get to that, notice the second Jesus that I see, and this one's very live at a Scottsdale Bible-type church, and that is what I call the help me get my doctrine and lifestyle right, Jesus. Now, again, I want to be really clear on something. And let me just say this up front so that nobody misunderstands me. Um, Yes or no, does doctrine matter greatly? Yes or no? Yes. Are you guys awake? Does doctrine matter greatly? Yes. Does lifestyle and obedience and holiness matter greatly to our Christian life? Yes or no? Yes. So with that understanding, here's my concern. There are some of us whose entire relationship with Jesus, I don't even think I'd call it a relationship, our entire paradigm of Jesus simply centers around get my doctrine right and make sure I live the lifestyle. And I know that because they care more about being five-point Calvinists than compassionate followers of Jesus. (laughs) They care more about being unwavering Arminians than they do ardent followers of Jesus. They care more about doctrine and the overcoming of vices, and it's good to overcome vices, by the way, than they do having an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, at least in the way that they posture this thing. And and, and I haven't been a Christian for 34 years, but honestly, 34 years ago, I knew that I don't have a relationship with doctrine. I don't have a relationship with lifestyle. Who do I have a relationship with? The risen Savior, of whom doctrine points to, and of whom lifestyle should flow from. But they are different. Give me a head now that you all understand that. I'm just not sure 
It scares me that there's people in our church that when I hear them talk, this is all I hear. So you got the take away all my pain and bless me, Jesus. You got the help me get my doctrine right and lifestyle, Jesus. And then this one has only been in the last decade, but man, this one's just flowing right now. It's the give me a cause to sink my discontentment into Jesus. So, so it's those, and I go, I'm going to step on toes here right now, just, gosh, I'll ask for forgiveness beforehand. But it's those among us that all we ever do is watch Fox News and talk about politics. I, I mean, honestly, I, I hear some Christians talking, all the, the only emails they ever send me, this is a problem with society, and this, and this, and this, we got to take back America. And and I, do I agree with that, by the way? Do I agree that we should take back America? Yes. Do I agree that we should vote properly? Yes or no? Yes. But is that the core of our faith in Jesus Christ? No. And by the way, the young people are making the same mistake. I mean, I'm picking on baby boomers here, but, you know, the young ones are now all missional. If you notice that, that's the word they use, missional. We're missional. What's missional? Well, we're into justice and the poor and da-da-da. We're going to rehab playgrounds and link arms with the mayor and we're going to do this. And, you know, I go, okay, good and fine. Well, is that the core of your faith in Jesus? I hope not. I I hope that's an expression of your faith in Jesus. But again, and here's my simple concern, and, and if the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. But my simple concern is, is that when, do, when we do an audit of our spiritual lives, when some of us are honest with ourselves, we realize that we are confused about the exact nature of Jesus. This has gone way beyond just a little pet passion. This has become the sum of our walk with him. It's the give me a cause to sink my discontentment into Jesus. And, and again, I believe in blessings. I believe in doctrine. I believe in lifestyle. I believe in causes. But none of these are the core of who Jesus is. None of them. And by the way, none of them comprise his central agenda for you and me. What is that central agenda? Here it is. And that is what I call the bring me to God and himself in right relationship, Jesus. (laughs) That's what Jesus is after, guys. He's the Messiah God who is going to die on a cross for the sins of humankind so that we might be brought into right relationship with the Father through faith and only faith, because our good works don't matter. But once we do that, once we come to him through faith in the Messiah God who died on a cross for my sins, watch this, then he becomes our spiritual king. And then he becomes the one who reigns in our hearts and our minds each moment of every day. And here's what happens when you get that. When your day is about relating to your heavenly father through his sin-forgiving son, praying to him, hearing him speak back to you, reading about him in his word, understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when it's a relationship. You know what's cool about that? Blessings will come. There'll be times when blessings come. Your doctrine will be pretty much spot on. Obedience will start to flow. And you just might find a cause or two (laughs) to sink your teeth into but it'll be from a totally different perspective. It's flowing from relationship with Jesus rather than defining your relationship with Jesus by these things. And there's a difference. Somebody said to me the other day, he says, it sounds like you're saying that order matters, the order of these things. Well, duh. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Order does matter. Because if you start with the latter... If your entire relationship with Jesus is more about a relationship with doctrine or lifestyle or getting your blessing or whatever it might be, I'm telling you, that's not the Jesus that he wants you to know. He wants you to know the sin-forgiving son who came to this earth for you intimately 
and personally. And once you get that, here's my simple point. You're no longer confused, and everything flows from this. Okay, I know I've been a little bit tough on us here, at least as tough as I'm ever going to get. And, and, and so uh, let me just share one last thing, and then we're going to watch a, a my story. Um, as much as I was tough on some of us here today, that's really not the, the majority of my week. <laughs> because having said what I just said here today, you know what else we celebrate around here all the time is that there are plenty of you that got it right. <laughs> there is. I, I, I love you guys. And, and there are plenty of times where throughout my week, though I have to detach people from the blessings Jesus or the doctrine Jesus or the missional Jesus, whatever it is, I, I, there's plenty of times where people tell me stories of a victory in their life in the midst of profound difficulty. And I just say, man, brought to tears, you get it. You get who he is. And I'm just so thrilled with you. Uh, Jeanette is somebody who's an usher at our Cactus Campus. And she has a story that's just blown the whole Cactus Campus away. And we captured it in a video this week. And we want to show it to you. This will encourage you. Listen close, because she says some pretty radical things about how important it is we understand this Jesus rightly. Look up here on the screen, then we'll close in prayer. My name is Jeanette Baranski. I grew up Catholic, and we went to church every Sunday, and I definitely believed in God, but I didn't have a relationship. In 2003, um, I was training for a triathlon. I was working kind of at the prime of my life, and I had some pain in the top of my foot, and I went to a podiatrist, and we were trying to figure out what was wrong, and after a lot of injections, they decided to shorten a bone, and when he did it, it never fused back together, so I ended up having many surgeries. I lost toes little by little, um, had my foot cut in half for quite a few years, um, stimulus implants put in my back and spine to try and help me tolerate the pain through it. And eventually, um, circulation lost and too much pain. In 2006, we finally had to amputate the leg. I saw my world crumbling at that point. Um, I looked at it, I, I wouldn't be able to hike, I wouldn't be able to do anything. And then I started thinking, what am I gonna do about my kids? I had a very high profile job and I traveled the country for U-Haul International and running around um, wheelchairs, crutches or whatever, eventually I had to lose my job. I didn't know what to do. I felt like I put us in financial problems. Um, my kids were all just kind of looking at me. I was in a wheelchair, I was in pain, I was depressed, and it just wasn't me. I was gaining weight at one point, and that's when my sister said, you just need to go to a Christian church that we just really study the Bible and you understand it. So we went. And I remember sitting in there and I felt, oh my goodness, I'm the only one in here. I just felt like they were talking directly to me. I just started praying and I started reading into the Bible a little bit and I just really had never known the Lord and I really felt like, um, you know, he was giving me peace of what was going on. And I realized how much I was missing out on and how much it wasn't about me and how the love of the people that knew the Lord, um, they surrounded me. And I kind of just feel like, I just had to get like a slap in the face, for lack of better words, and just say, you need to tone down and set your priorities straight. You know, I put my leg on, and instead of just getting up and going, I start thinking about the beauty of the world, the beauty of people. I have now joined the Stephen Ministry and work with people on helping them when they just are feeling down. And I just never look at what I can't do. I look at what God has blessed me with and another way to do it. So losing everything actually became probably the best thing that ever happened. When people stop me and they say they see something, it's definitely the light of Jesus. He has just turned my life around. I, I hated it first, but now if I had to do it again, I think I would do it again. Because I've now, you know, see life in a whole different way. My husband became a Christian. My kids have come to Christ, and that's why I would do it again, because he is using me every day. 
So I just have to think the Lord has something special planned out, and I wasn't meant to do life the way I was doing it. I'm meant now to help other people. My name is Jeanette Baranski, and this is my story. I'm just going to let that speak for itself. Uh, our uh, pastor is going to lead us in an elder fund offering here uh, shortly, but before we do that, let's bow and pray. Father, uh, to me, it's a profound holy moment uh, here and in our venues and campuses when we see a story like that and, and realize that, that, that when a woman says that if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it just this way, that at the end of the day, it's, it's not about me, it's about you. God, those are profound words. And to realize that all that's centered around a very right understanding of Jesus. Not a, not a bless me Jesus, not a lifestyle Jesus, not a causal Jesus, but a Jesus that involves all those things, but at core is not all those things. At core, a living relationship that we can have that, as Jeanette says, gives peace to one's soul. So God, I pray that the question we'd all be asking ourselves here today, no matter where we might be in our spiritual journey, is, is Jesus enough? Blessings or not, is Jesus enough for our souls? And God, may we not rest until we have the kind of understanding and the kind of faith in him in which truly he is enough. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you never leave us. Thank you that you're constantly trying to, to help us shed the doubt and, and embrace the faith that centers all upon you. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and his precious name. Amen.